Welcome to Twill, the week in health law, the podcast of record for the discussion of health law and policy. We're recording this episode on August 10th, 2016. I'm Nicholas Terry, a law professor at Indiana University McKinney School of Law in Indianapolis, joined for what feels like uh, the 10th year in a row by... <laughs> Frank Pasquale, law professor at the University of Maryland School of Law in Baltimore, Maryland. And Frank, this is the beginning of uh, one of the favorite uh, parts of the year for us, uh, literally, as we get back to teaching, but also here on the pod, listening to uh, each other and our wonderful guests, giving advice to uh, uh, teachers as to what may be coming along, to hints, I'm guessing, to law students as to difficult questions to prepare for, and also hopefully for the broader uh, listening audience we have to get an in-depth treatment of the major health law and policy issues of the year by some true experts. Back to School Special is always a favorite of mine as well because I think it's just so helpful to get a roundup of folks that have been thinking intensively about these issues, have had some time to process, and then give a considered judgment as to what's most important. We all need these filters and information overload era. So I'm so glad that our guests have decided to join us this week. Alison Hoffman is professor of law at UCLA School of Law, where she teaches healthcare law and policy and a seminar on health insurance and reform. Alison, this appearance on Twill is long overdue. Welcome to you. Nick and Frank, it's such a pleasure to be here and I appreciate you inviting me today. So thinking about teaching this fall, I've been reflecting on the fact that when I started teaching health law less than a decade ago, a standard health law survey class included very few Supreme Court opinions. And then this past session, there were three healthcare cases in the Supreme Court. I want to talk about two of those that I'll teach in my survey class this fall that deal with employee health benefit plans, Gobey versus Liberty Mutual Health Insurance and Zubik versus Burwell. So what I think is interesting about these cases is that they're both about the extent to which employers have control over their employee health benefit plans. Historically, the content of these plans has been very lightly regulated. So ERISA, the federal law that governs employee benefits, prevents states from regulating these plans through broad preemption language. And its stated goal is enabling employers who operate across state lines to have uniformity in their plans. What's more, though, is that even prior to the ACA, there was limited substantive federal regulation of the plans as well. So as a result, employers enjoyed wide discretion over the design of the plans. So this is particularly important, and I'm providing this background because half of the non-elderly population, about 150 million people in the U.S., have these kinds of ERISA plans through their employers. And two-thirds of workers are in what are called self-funded plans. So let me get technical for one moment because it comes into both it comes into these cases. So these are plans where the employer pays out the claims and bears the risk if the employees have high health care costs in any one year. The employer um, has to figure out how to finance those costs. And these are the least regulated plans, the ones where the employer self-funds and bears the risk of the plans. Um, Gobey and Zubik both concern efforts uh, to reach into this deregulated space of employee health benefits plans. One of these cases deals with a state law and the other with a federal requirement in the Affordable Care Act. So let me talk for a minute about Gobey and then I'll talk about Zubik and then I'll come back to um, why I think it's important to teach both of these cases in a, in a survey health law class. So in Gobey, um, Vermont, along with 16 other states, have or are implementing what are called all-payer claims databases. These databases collect comprehensive information on healthcare being used in the state. So they collect information on utilization of care, the prices paid for care, the quality of care, 
all different kinds of aspects of healthcare. This case deals in particular with a Vermont law that required health insurers to report medical claims data, pharmacy claims data, member eligibility data, and other types of information. The the regulations defined health insurer very broadly to include these self-insured health benefit plans and the third-party administrators, the people that the employers hired to help them administer the plans. So in this case, Liberty Mutual Insurance Company, the respondent, is an employer in Vermont with one of these self-funded ERISA plans. And they didn't want their third-party administrator to report their claims data, and they filed the suit claiming that ERISA preempts the application of the Vermont law to the plan. The court agreed, in an opinion opinion by Kennedy, with everybody but Ginsburg and Sotomayor joining. The court held that the law has an impermissible connection with, which is important preemption language, uh, ERISA plans because it touches on a central matter of plan administration. So they, they said that because ERISA plans, because these plans are required to file data reports annually, annually with the, federally to the Secretary of Labor, which the Secretary may use for research, um, that that was federal space. And that when the states, when the Vermont law was trying to regulate in that space, it was stepping on the toes of the Department of Labor, and thus the Vermont law was preempted with respect to ERISA plans. So Ginsburg penned a good dissent in this case with arguments for why and how somebody might read the federal reporting as as narrow and different than what the Vermont law was trying to require and thus not preempted. Uh, And Thomas wrote an interesting concurrence suggesting that ERISA preemption in and of itself, separate from this case, might be unconstitutionally sweeping. So a case with lots of interesting pieces to unravel. Let me turn for a moment to Zubik versus Burwell. So this case illustrates, so the first case is about state law. The second case illustrates how the federal government also has limits put on its ability to regulate these employer health plans. In this case, the ACA's attempt to regulate employer health plans comes up against a law called the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. This law, which people call RIFRA, says that when federal regulations substantially burden a person's exercise of religion, the government must use the least restrictive means to further their compelling government interests. The ACA requires group health plans to provide free coverage of of preventive health services, including all contraception methods approved by the FDA. And when writing the regulations, HHS Health and Human Services exempted houses of worship from this requirement, um, looking forward and thinking that they might not be able to regulate in this space. And they also later created an accommodation for religious nonprofit organizations through a self-certification process. So what they were trying to do through this accommodation was to make things easier, to give uh, an out for nonprofit organizations who are religiously affiliated. So as you might remember in last year's Hobby Lobby case, the existence of this very accommodation led the Supreme Court to hold that requiring closely held for-profit corporations to cover contraception violated RIFRA because it clearly wasn't the least restrictive alternative if this accommodation were available, this less restrictive accommodation. So now in this year's reprise, the petitioners who are religious nonprofit organizations challenged the accommodation as a violation of their religious, religious freedom under RIFRA. Since the, um, the, so the, their claim is that since the organization's indication that they won't provide coverage is a necessary part to trimmer, trigger the accommodation, that in no, so notifying the government, they become complicit in the eventual provision of coverage to their employees. And so that, that complicitness, they say, is a substantial burden on their religious freedom. They argue that these regulations, in oral arguments, they argue that these regulations hijacked their employer plans, which is a funny framing considering that these plans are regulated and can be regulated by federal law as they were by the ACA. 
So the government, on the other hand, argued that the accommodation was serving the compelling interest of seamless coverage for contraception care and that it was the least restrictive means of achieving the goal. So this case took an interesting turn. After oral arguments, the Supreme Court asked for supplemental briefing on whether a a less restrictive alternative might be possible. They were envisioning something where petitioners' insurance companies could provide coverage through a completely separate policy without the petitioners having to do anything. So if the petitioners didn't comply, that noncompliance would signal to the insurer to act. The parties filed response briefs that suggested that some agreement was possible on this question with regard to the fully insured plans, but probably not with respect to the self-insured plans. And in response to these briefs, the court declined to rule on the case's merits and vacated and returned it to the lower courts in a unanimous procurium opinion. This approach was almost certainly to avoid a 4-4 split on the court. This was uh, this this case occurred after Scalia died, and so a 4-4 split would have left the lower court's decisions uh, all but one in favor of the government standing. And uh, and so what what might happen going forward is if the parties are unable to reach a compromise below, which I think is quite possible, we could see this case return to the Supreme Court in the future. And the decision of who fills Scalia's seat here will make all of the difference in the outcome. So let me talk one last moment about why I pick these cases. Um, I teach Gobey for a couple of reasons. First, part two of the opinion is an extremely clear summary of recent Supreme Court decisions on ERISA preemption. Uh, Perhaps too clear in light of the money doctrine, but I think useful for students nonetheless. Also, this case puts a big question mark on the nature of ERISA preemption going forward. After what we've seen over the over the past decade is a presumption against preemption and some recent contraction of ERISA preemption scope in travelers and other cases, and Gobey opens it back up again. So at a time when we might actually want to look to the states to fill in gaps left by the ACA, especially with respect to healthcare spending, states could have their hands tied by concerns of ERISA preemption, putting more pressure on the federal government, on the Department of Labor and, and Health and Human Services to act. Zubik versus Burwell, I'll teach in conjunction with Hobby Lobby in a unit on ACA litigation. And in a health law and policy class, I focus less on the Supreme Court's RIFRA analysis and more on the deregulatory effect of RIFRA uh, within an employer-based insurance system, and also on ethical questions about equitable access to contraception. So this case offers a moment for some um, for some humor. The respondents argue that the only least restrictive alternative uh, that the least restrictive alternative would be a government-funded contraception-only coverage plan. And I teasingly ask my students to consider whether Congress would fund a plan, or for that matter, an organization that provided free contraception to all comers. Any student aware of the decade of battles over government funding for Planned Parenthood can see the absurdity, and I usually get at least a few laughs on that one. And then finally, I use Zubik to examine the moral implications of health insurance. Very early on in my health law class, we talk about risk pooling and what it means when something is paid for by insurance with the costs covered by shared premium dollars. When the ACA mandated coverage of contraception, in effect, it affirmed its social value by saying it should be equally accessible to all women, regardless of their ability to pay. And in Zubik, it becomes very clear that what some see as a social imperative, others see as a moral wrong. When both of their dollars go into the same insurance risk pool, you end up in the Supreme Court and on my health law syllabus for this fall. Well, those are just wonderful choices. I I was thinking uh, of Gobey the other day because there's a certain temptation 
temptation, I think, since the ACA, maybe to not teach as much ERISA, but uh, that would, of course, improve one's student evaluations. Uh, but I think uh, Gobey <laughs> is a fine reminder that uh, it, it, it has to be front and center, particularly with obviously with regard to the self-funded plans. I actually had a student tell me recently that she got a job because she was able to talk about ERISA preemption during her job interview, which affirmed my uh, resolve to teach these cases, even though they're quite hard to teach. That is a great story of uh, virtue rewarded. And I really appreciate your common thread between those two uh, cases, Allison. I've not uh, seen that in the uh, critical literature so far. So thanks. Yeah, my pleasure. Nicole Huberfeld is the Ashland Spears Distinguished Research Professor of Law and Associate Dean for Academic Affairs at the University of Kentucky College of Law and Bioethics Associate at the College of Medicine there. Professor Huberfeld teaches healthcare law and constitutional law courses uh, and I think holds the record for the number of TWIL appearances. Uh, welcome back, Nikki. Thanks, Nick. It's great to be back. I'm really delighted to join you again. And I didn't realize I held the record. I, I wonder if that's true. <laughs> I so I, he I heard a rumor you had a new book out. Is that correct? I do. Thank you for mentioning it. The Law of American Healthcare. It has just emerged in hardcover and is ready to roll for the fall semester. What is it? This is what, like a 25-page paperback? Oh, it's a tiny topic. Yeah. yeah. There's not much to say. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so I am going to take a slightly more meta perspective on what I'd like to think about teaching for the fall semester. Obviously, I'll be using my new book, and the book is designed to allow teachers to fill in where they have particular interests, and we've kept the book lean and mean. It comes in at about 800 pages. Um, and so I hope that I'm building to a degree on what Allison was discussing, and, and like Frank, I loved how she connected Gobey and Zubin. First, I'd like to talk about whole women's health versus Hellerstedt. Uh, and second, I'd like to talk about what's going on in Medicaid expansion. And you might think these topics are disparate. But I would like to uh, plug for one of the reasons that I think health law can be difficult is that we don't necessarily think about our larger themes all of the time. And to me, one of the larger themes in all of these cases is the story of healthcare federalism. And the differences that we're seeing in the way that the Supreme Court interprets federalism writ large and the sort of stickiness of dual sovereignty federalism for the Supreme Court versus the more progressive view of cooperative federalism and, and what I call dynamic federalism in the statutory based federalism that it, we're seeing between the federal government and the states and the, the negotiation that the states and the federal government are willing to engage in is very different from what we're seeing in the, the judiciary's interpretation of federalism. So first, let me talk a little bit about whole women's health on its own terms before I try to go meta on you. So whole women's health, as probably a lot of people know by now, was sort of the test case for trap laws, the targeted regulation of abortion provider laws that many, many states had passed in the last several years. There's been a significant increase in these types of laws, which specifically single out abortion providers for calculatedly burdensome regulations. And the regulations are of the type that would not be imposed on other healthcare providers also licensed by the state. And so in Whole Women's Health at issue was a set of Texas laws that included provisions such as a Texas law requiring doctors who perform abortions to have admitting privileges at hospitals that are no further than 30 miles from their clinic. 
and another provision that stated that each abortion-providing clinic must have the same facilities as ambulatory surgical centers. And Texas, in creating these laws, purported to be protecting women's health by writing these laws, but at the same time that Texas put that reasoning forward, uh, the governor and the lieutenant governor were simultaneously tweeting that they were proud that they were going to be shutting down most of the abortion clinics in the state by creating these laws. And so if you listen to oral arguments in Whole Women's Health, there is this interesting moment where Justice Kennedy's light bulb goes on about the reasoning of the state in creating these laws. And there's this whole back and forth about whether or not Texas is actually acting in the interest of women's health. And one of the other laws that Texas had passed was a law that prevented women from obtaining medical abortions through drugs like RU486 unless they had gone to an ambulatory surgery center to take the medication. And the result of that was an increase in the number of so-called surgical abortions, even though they're not technically surgery, in Texas, as opposed to medical abortions. And Justice Kennedy said, well, that doesn't sound like a good thing for people to have to obtain surgery rather than take medicine. That seems like it would be detrimental to health. And in my view, that's the moment when Justice Kennedy's vote might have moved to the majority. And so the outcome in Whole Women's Health versus Hellerstadt, after a lot of uh, prognostication by many was that the court held that both of Texas's requirements placed a substantial obstacle in the path of women seeking a pre-viability abortion and therefore constituted an undue burden on abortion access and violated the U.S. Constitution. So the court upheld Casey. It upheld Roe. Of course, those are the two sort of markers for understanding what's permissible and what's not in terms of state regulation of abortion procedures. And they're important in the web of constitutional rights that sort of undergird what we could think of as pregnancy in the law. So we tend to think of abortion as this sort of standalone issue, but in fact, it's deeply related to questions of contraception, which of course Allison was just discussing, deeply related to questions of parental rights, deeply related to rights of the family. And this interwoven web is very hard to start to unravel. And so if the court started to remove some of those rights, it would be potentially touching this other cluster of rights. And I think there's sort of an implicit acknowledgement of that in the case, despite the fact, and I don't want to overread it, but the case is very heavily fact-based. And so to me, what that means is that there will be more litigation. I think it is important to understand that although there was sort of a big celebration by pro-choice advocates after the decision came down, I believe there will be more litigation. There will be more district court litigation. There will be potentially, eventually, more more petitions for certiorari that make to the Supreme Court because the decision is so heavily based on the particular facts of the laws as they stood in Texas relative to the existing legislative scheme in Texas that we will certainly see more litigation with regard to the right that is access to abortion. I also think that the case, less on its own terms and more at the meta level, raises some important healthcare federalism questions because there's this question of how much the judiciary should be deferring to states' traditional exercise of police powers in health and medicine matters. 
And of course, in part, this is the reason that Texas was saying it passed these laws for women's health. But we can also look to Casey and the blueprint that it had created for states and their understanding of the ways in which they could regulate abortion. And the store, excuse me, the Supreme Court in Casey had said, if the state is regulating to protect women's health, that is permissible, so long as it does not place a substantial obstacle in a woman's path to seeking an abortion. And so here, the court told the state of Texas that it is it was acting irrationally, basically, that there was not even a legitimate reason for Texas to have created these laws, which in my view is important given the landscape that we're operating in now, which is this sort of statutory federal landscape with a state overlay in a post-ACA world except for some of these hot-button issues like contraception and abortion, where there seem to be these trade-offs for other healthcare gains and where there is not necessarily a federal baseline. Now, with contraception, as Allison said a moment ago, we do have a federal baseline in the ACA that contraception becomes accessible with, a, with no co-payments. But, but it, isn't, it isn't a clear operating world, honestly. Um, and I think in Gobei too, you see this sort of these these heavy duty federalism questions being asked and answered in uncertain terms. Um, and so I want to carry through on that federalism theme in thinking about and talking about for just a minute, if you'll indulge me, what's going on in Medicaid expansion, um, because I'm continuing to do work on sort of tracking what's going on in Medicaid expansion and trying to observe what's driving it and what is happening. And what I'm thinking of is sort of the fourth wave of Medicaid expansion. And so this is a part of a paper that I'm working on with Abby Gluck that we're thinking of as calling the the new healthcare federalism. And, and one of the things that we're trying to figure out is sort of who's pulling the levers of power in healthcare federalism and when and why. And so what's happening right now, sort of pre-presidential election, but post-gubernatorial elections in 2015, is that we've seen some states that were opted out of Medicaid opting in. So for example, Montana, Louisiana opting in. Indiana finally opting in. Indiana is the new thought leader in the waiver negotiations that are occurring for Medicaid expansion. Indiana's waiver is arguably the most complex so far. It is somewhat unusual for a Section 1115 waiver because it has so many experiments in it that are questionable in terms of their advancement of the medical assistance that is required by the Medicaid Act that HHS is now asking Indiana to have an independent contractor review the successes and failures of Indiana's expansion. But it is clearly a model for some other states already. New Hampshire drew on Indiana's successes and its negotiations with HHS in crafting its waiver model. And notably, Kentucky is now in very high-profile waiver negotiation mode. The new governor in Kentucky, Matt Bevin, campaigned on a promise of eliminating Medicaid expansion in the state, despite the fact that it covers more than 400,000 people. And despite the fact that most of those people would have no other mechanism for obtaining health insurance. And so Governor Bevin has proposed a Medicaid waiver that contains many features that look like Indiana's successful waiver, but also some features that have been rejected by HHS that demonstrate the sort of outer limits of what HHS is willing to negotiate in Medicaid expansion. So for example, Governor Bevin has incorporated work requirements into his proposal for the new Medicaid waiver. And of course, HHS has consistently rejected proposals for work requirements because medical care is unrelated to health insurance. And this has been a constant theme 
We saw Governor Corbett in Pennsylvania attempt work requirements in Pennsylvania's waiver, which was subsequently dropped by Governor Wolf. Um, even Governor Pence in Indiana tried to obtain a Medicaid waiver that contained work requirements. HHS, again, said that's not possible. And here we have Governor Bevin trying it again. And I think that this theme of requiring work of Medicaid enrollees is important because it demonstrates uh, an ignorance or denial of the fact that half of the population does not get health insurance through work. And most of the people who are eligible for Medicaid expansion are working. And so there's this disconnect in the knowledge that we have of who's working and what they get through work and who isn't working. And there are some great charts on Kaiser Family Foundation that can be used to uh, demonstrate the, these numbers if you want to take on this topic in a classroom. So the, the short version for teaching purposes is that Medicaid expansion continues, but it is something to watch. It's something to watch not only because of the gubernatorial elections that are coming up in the next election in November, but also, of course, because of the presidential election that's coming up. And I think it makes for a fun moment, if you're willing to take it on, to ask your class, if you're teaching a healthcare finance class, if you're teaching a, a general healthcare lecture, to, to divide them up uh, in, into political parties um, of your own design and to ask them to come up with what they think the platform should be for each of the political parties for the election. And it's interesting to see once uh, I've done this at this exercise for several years now, it's interesting to see what the students come up with when they're forced to take the position of the opposing party and even when they're operating within their own natural ideological leanings. I think one of the important things for the students to realize is that ideology becomes policy and policy becomes law and law sticks. And so right now, what we're seeing is that the law of the ACA has been pretty sticky, but the Supreme Court has done a lot to sort of interfere with it. And this next election is going to matter a lot, both in terms of teaching and in terms of the law writ large. I wanted to ask just in terms of the direction of negotiations with HHS to follow up on something you mentioned while you were describing them, an independent contractor what exactly is the role of this type of independent contractor in trying to figure out where has Medicare, Medicaid expand, experimentalism worked and where has it not? Because I'm getting a sense as I'm prepping my um, uh, contribution to this on the alternative payment models under MACRA that a lot of the progress of the health reform system is going to hinge on what is measured. And so is there, are there developing criteria or quantitative metrics for success of these waivers? I wish it were that formal. Um, so for example, one of the things that they're trying to measure is uh, Indiana and a couple of other states like Michigan have short-term waivers that allow them to experiment with preventing non-emergency use of ambulances. And if people call for an ambulance but do not actually have a medical emergency, they will be charged for it in the Medicaid program in these states. So they either won't cover that, that transportation or there's sort of a sliding scale of somewhat punitive co-payments that the state can require in Indiana in particular. And the question is, will people get the care that they need if non-emergency medical transportation is not provided by the state? The answer so far seems to be no. But I wouldn't say that it's a much more sophisticated set of questions than that. I mean, from, from one perspective, you're asking the sort of classic set of questions that are, 
healthcare coverage questions, right? What does it take for a person to get coverage? What does coverage mean in terms of delivery? Does delivery actually mean access? And what does that access do to cost, right? We, we know that that's sort of a, a natural four-step set of questions, but the analysis is much more waiver-specific than uh, what I think you're proposing in your question. Is health federalism an exception to the state's rights jurisprudence that we've seen from the court over the last few decades? Or is it part and parcel, do you think, as I, as I uh, leverage your constitutional law uh, skills, is it part and parcel of a move to a broader federalism? I would argue that NFIB versus Sibelius shows us that the Supreme Court, at least you know, pre-Justice Scalia's death, is still very much interested in uh, uh, this strict sense of dual sovereignty, uh, whether in healthcare or in other areas. And, and part of the reason that I would say that is that, in my view, the court took up NFIB versus Sibelius specifically to use the Medicaid expansion as a vehicle for applying Tenth Amendment restrictions to the spending power, which had not been done before that. And so I don't think it's a tempest in a teapot. I think it's actually part of a long-term charge on the part of Justice Kennedy and some of the other justices who wanted to ensure that Tenth Amendment analysis would be applied to congressional acts because that was long seen as a loophole in the the resurgence of federalism doctrine that we have seen since the Rehnquist Court. I just wanted to hop in on that. <clears throat> Nikki, one of the things I think is interesting about Go Bay is that it cuts in the other direction and that that's part of what Thomas his concurrence talks about, right, is when you see the court wrestling with with these questions, that um, that the ERISA preemption jurisprudence is is essentially uh, widening the space of federal authority and limiting the space the state's ability. I agree with that. I think that on those terms, Gobey does cut in the other direction. But I think a different way to think about Gobey is that it is still very much of that sort of dual sovereignty model to which we can sort of assign some of the older federal statutes and the way that the court thought about federalism with older federal statutes that are in play in healthcare. So, you know, we can think about how Medicare and Medicaid and ERISA looked under the old dual sovereignty regime. And I think that what you see in Gobey is sort of a remnant of that that view of federalism. And ERISA has sort of comfortably fit in that view of federalism. It's sort of easy to slice and dice ERISA between the states and the federal government. I mean, I don't know if I can actually say easy, given that ERISA goes before the Supreme Court every couple of years, but I think you know what I mean. And the last thing that I would just uh, comment on as I was reading, I think it was in the Health Affairs blog, I'll try to put it up for the show notes, a rundown of Kentucky Governor uh, Matt Bevin's proposals. And one of them was a strange spin on the work requirement that would require people to do 20 hours of volunteer work. Has that been tried anywhere before? Or is that is that at all? I, I'm hoping that's a complete non-starter, but I was just, it really provoked uh, my interest in that of the person and who wrote the blog post there. That's a non-starter. In my view, that fits within the work requirements that other states have tried to create and is part of this whole myth of self-reliance, right? This idea that you need to train people to work for some reason. We don't apply that scrutiny to people who are getting private insurance through the exchanges in states that have not expanded Medicaid, but who are getting large sums of money from the federal government to purchase private insurance. 
we say only apply that scrutiny to people who are on Medicaid, even though they're functionally the same populations. So to me, this is part of this false dividing line between private and public insurance that we continue to perpetuate that exists not only in the ACA, but throughout our history. Well, I, I, I bet you weren't too much of a fan of the Elizabethan poor laws either. Not my favorite, no. <laughs> <laughs> so, Alison, thank you so much. That was wonderful. It was my pleasure. Thank you. And Nikki, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me on again. I always love it. And a big welcome to Abby Gluck, Professor of Law and Faculty Director of the Solomon Center for Health Law and Policy. Uh, Abby is a incredible expert on Congress, federalism, and, of course, Twill's topic, health law. Finally, Abby, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be on. So it's back to school time. And uh, I remember simpler times, Abby, where back to school meant maybe a new backpack, certainly a, <laughs> certainly a new lunchbox. Uh, what What is your back to school looking like this year? Well, uh, it's a very busy time, as you know. We've just uh, entered year two of the Solomon Center's existence, so we have a lot of great programming. Uh, but I also have a brand new course that I'm teaching this year that I'm very excited about, but that's going to be a lot of work and a really interesting new experience. And what's that? It's a new course. It's called uh, Foundations of Health Law, and it's basically centering around 14 huge seminal books on health policy that really that really aren't about law on their face. And um, you know, the idea behind the course is actually twofold. It's first to actually take the time to read these seminal books. For example, we're reading two Pulitzer Prize-winning books: The Emperor of All Maladies, Mukherjee's Biography of Cancer, and we're reading Paul Starr's The Social Transformation of American Medicine. I can tell about some of the other books that uh, we're reading also. But the idea is to take the time to actually read these books. But the second idea is actually to stop and think about what these books that are not about law per se, what they actually have to do with the law, or what is the role that health lawyers can play in the problems the books raise. So for another example, we're reading uh, Atul Gawande's Being Mortal, which is about end of life. So when the students read that book, the question is, you know, he's identifying all of these problems, these structural problems with the way we die, has the law been complicit? Has the law been a help? What is the role of lawyers? And the reason I'm really excited about this course is that, uh, in addition, obviously, to be able to reread and experience these wonderful books, is that I think the hardest thing for health law students, and, and frankly, health law academics too, sometimes is to figure out what the role of law is in a lot of questions that kind of feel like they're policy oriented. But, you know, health law, health policy really centers so much around the structures of health law, even though those structures are sometimes a little bit less obvious than they are in other areas of law. And so this course is a different way to get at those issues and try to think very deeply and broadly about the way that law infiltrates all of these different policy areas. So how did you start did you did you start with two or three books and then sort of uh, increase the list, or yeah, did yes. you take a poll? Or? I did. I crowdsourced. I did. So <laughs> I uh, I did that. I never do stuff like that. And uh, you will attest from how difficult it was to get me on the podcast. I'm not very technologically inclined. But what I did was I I knew I wanted to start with the Emperor of Maladies and Paul Starr's Social Transformation and Gawande's book. So those were the three books, in part because I happened to be particularly interested in cancer, and so those books were the books that were on my must read list. And I had 
Also, Andrew Solomon, the writer from The New Yorker, is coming to the law school this year to discuss his book on mental health and depression, Noonday Demon. So that was also um, a must read. And then I basically crowdsourced about 25 of my health law friends. And I got this remarkable list. But what was very interesting is that there was a lot of agreement on the must reads in the list. Uh, and so it wasn't that hard in the end to put them together. I also tried to have some diverse topics. So one book, one new book we're going to be reading is Dinah Matthews' book on just medicine, racial bias in healthcare. Great, great book. One of, right. the, one of the best books I've read this year. And, and she was kind enough to come on the pod and, and discuss it with us. Oh, that's that terrific. A, so I was yeah. trying to include some new ones and some books that have a different perspective, um, as well as some of the old classics. Very, very nice. Well, well feel free to, um, to, to you know, tell these wonderful authors that if they, if they need a podcast to, to be on. <laughs> okay. You've, you've, you've got a friend. I'll pass the word along. So how did you, I, one thing I, I, I suppose it, 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 it's unfair to ask, it's like opening the presents before Christmas, right? But what, what's the big finish? Oh, it's that, you know, it's funny because the actual schedule is much more dictated by some of the author's availability. I basically have got a lot of the authors uh, who are going to be in New Haven or passing through New Haven. So it's mostly dictated in order of who can come up to Yale when. So it doesn't proceed in any particular way. Uh, we're starting with Vincent DeVita, The Death of Cancer. DeVita is a very well-known um, oncologist who ran Sloan Kettering and Yale Cancer Center and just had written this biography. So he's a he's the beginning and Gawanda is actually the end. So we're sort of bookending with cancer. And in the middle, we've got um, Richard Epstein is talking about mortal peril and overdose. We've got um, Dan Carpenter's uh, Power and Reputation about the FDA. We've got some excerpts from some work by Zika Manual. We've got the politics of Medicare with Ted Marmer. So we've got a lot of people sandwiched in between. And the idea is to both almost survey the field of uh, public health law. And by public health law, I don't mean public health law, but I mean the public law of healthcare and read these interesting books along the way. That's so exciting. I, I, I wish I could enroll. <laughs> so one of the things that I'm thinking about at the moment and our colleagues around the country are thinking about and this podcast attempts to give some answers to is, okay, it's uh, it's time to get moving. The, the casebooks probably haven't been updated. Many things have happened, as is uh, the, the norm in healthcare law and policy. So what are the must-teach new issues or what are the new themes that you think uh, we should be incorporating in our health law classes, be they survey classes or specialized classes as they come up this year? Well, that's that's a great that's a great topic. So, you know, I think there are probably a lot out there right now for health professors who are looking to refresh their syllabus because, you know, for the last few years, the big syllabus item was obviously the Affordable Care Act and all the litigation uh, that was attendant to it. But now, hopefully, we're in a sort of post-litigation mode and professors can start to explore what are the real kind of changes that the fact is if, that the act has effectuated and, 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 and how those play into the law school curriculum. So, you know, one, one thing I would talk about, um, I think is very important, and which was the focus of actually my center's launching conference last year, is this idea that the healthcare industry has really been changing rather dramatically through rapid consolidation and coordination, both inside industries, the recent insurance mergers being a great example of that, but also across industries as hospitals are buying doctors and hospitals are buying insurers and vice versa. That has a lot in there for law professors. Obviously, antitrust is back and huge and very important in the field right now. But also, you know, you have to 
look at how the Affordable Care Act is responsible in some ways, uh, potentially, for these changes. You know, the drive toward ACOs and coordination is arguably what's been at least part of the impetus toward all this consolidation. And uh, that seems to be a very important um, new unit to have in the course. Uh, I also think that an old favorite, ERISA, uh, may deserve a little extra attention. Uh, ERISA was uh, featured in two cases in the Supreme Court last year, both the uh, birth control mandate case, Zubik and uh, Gabel, the the all-payer database case out of Vermont. Uh, And, you know, we're seeing how ERISA is interacting with the Affordable Care Act and the way ERISA may be getting in the way of states being able to act as sort of enforcement partners with the federal government in health policy. And that may make ERISA more interesting for law students than the nitty-gritty of the olden days. And and the last thing I would highlight, actually, is, um, you know, I don't think that health law professors should ignore the Supreme Court just because the big fights are over. I think that the Affordable Care Act has now become this lightning rod for better or for worse. And so we're getting a lot of major constitutional and regulatory questions being played out uh, through litigation about the Affordable Care Act. One great example is House versus Burwell, the case that's uh, in the D.C. Circuit now, which is um, basically a separation of powers fight that involves Congress versus the executive on a question of a legislative mandate and an uh, arguable failure of Congress to appropriate funds uh, to enforce that mandate. And so the Affordable Care Act is going to be talked about in Fed courts and con law and legislation and ad law and all of these traditional public law classes. And, you know, I've been saying for a long time now that health law professors should get in the game and they should be talking about these cases in their classes, bringing the health policy perspective into these cases so that their health law students can talk intelligently with other students and bring the health law perspective into the discussion of these constitutional and statutory cases. So that's what I would add if I were teaching the basic uh, health law course. But uh, as I said, I get to teach this fun books course this semester. So my update will have to wait. There are going to be a lot of jealous colleagues around the country knowing you're teaching that. Well, Abby, thank you so much. Please come back and join us again sometime. Thank you so much for having me. And that was this week's The Week in Health Law. A special thank you to all of our guests. We'll have plenty of information about them uh, and the issues that we've discussed in the show notes. Those show notes, of course, are at twill.com. And uh, if you have a moment, please go to iTunes and rate the show. How could you not rate a back-to-school special? Uh, You can contact me at Nicholas Terry on Twitter. And Frank, you are? At Frank Pasquale on Twitter. Well, thank you for joining us for this first part of the back-to-school special. And have a legally interesting but healthy few days until part two comes out.